This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Barton Swaim is a writer who contributes regularly to The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, The Times Literary Supplement, and The Weekly Standard. He holds a doctorate in English from the University of Edinburgh. From 2007 to 2010, he worked for South Carolina's Governor Mark Sanford as communications officer and speechwriter. His first book that caught a great deal of national attention is titled The Speechwriter, A Brief Education in Politics. Barton Swaim, welcome to Thinking in Public. Barton, your book, The Speechwriter, that was published back in 2015, instantly became a discussion point amongst people. Uh, first of all, just interested in politics. Uh, beyond that, those interested in words. And in it, you tell an incredible story. You do so a bit indirectly at points, but, uh, but how did this book come to be? How did Barton Swain come to write The Speechwriter? Oh, well, I couldn't help it. Um, you know, that's the trouble with writers. At least some of us, anyway. We just can't help, um, you know, if we if we see something that is a story worth telling, we just we just have to tell it. And so, I think I'm right in saying that I knew that I would write a write a book about my experience in the state house within oh, I don't know, a couple of months of going to work there, just because it, it's a crazy place. It's a very funny place, um, and 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 there are there are some pretty terrible things that go on there, you know, the cynicism of politics. But it was also funny to me. I just couldn't help it. Um, well, your book turns out to be quite a humorous book, I think partly because you must be a humorous writer, a humorous man, uh, first of all, just in terms of, of the book. But you also see the humor in, uh, in, in the crazy world uh, into which you stepped when you became a speechwriter to South Carolina Governor Mark Sanford. And, uh, you know, just even that scene about how you first were introduced to the job uh, is to me something of a kind of a classic of, uh, of uh, you might say, a, a young man's introduction into politics. Tell that story. Um, well, um, I, you know, I was, I was just a, a struggling writer. I, I had gotten, a, I'd gotten a, a doctorate in English lit, like a lot of people with doctorates in English lit. I didn't have a job. And you know, I always sort of fancied politics and and thought of myself working in it somehow one day. And so I sent this um, this interesting politician uh, who who lived in in town here in Columbia, um, the governor. I sent him a resume. I think I must have sent it at at the right time um, when the other some other speechwriter was being fired, um, which should have told me something, but so I found myself uh, suddenly just um, in his office and, uh, and we sort of hit it off. And um, I, I don't know. I, I just, I didn't know anything about, about state politics, but you don't have to know much about politics to, to, to be a speechwriter. You just have to sort of like being a writer. You don't, have, you don't have to know much about anything. You just have to sound like you do. Um, so, you know, there I was, and, and it went well for about two weeks. <laughs> and then it went south um, in some pretty terrible ways, but maybe funny in retrospect. 
Well, this became one of the big stories in American politics at, uh, at, at a moment when it was completely unexpected. Uh, the, the breakdown of a, of a governor and his administration uh, in the most bizarre story, if a novelist came up with it, no one really would have believed it. But before we kind of walk through that, uh, just in terms of, the, uh, of what it means to be a speechwriter and just out of respect for the English language, I think one of the most interesting things in the beginning of your book is how that when when politicians meet the English language, it's often just not pretty, and uh, and, and 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 by the time you finish your book, you're convinced it's probably not entirely an accident. What 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 happens when a politician collides with the English language? Well, right when a, that that's that's a good way of putting it, and you know, politicians hire writers for a good reason because they're good at some things but they're not good at stringing words together but they need to be able to do that in their job you know a politician's only real weapon is 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 words and um if he's not good at it he needs to hire somebody to do it for him um and in at least in the written form um and the but a lot of politicians Certainly, this is true of the one I worked for. Think they are good writers, um, and they they hire speechwriters. This is the case of a lot of people, and I've learned that since the book came out. People tell me this. You know, I worked for so and so, who's the same way. Um, they hire speechwriters or writers uh, mainly to save time. It, it's not so much they, they don't hire you for your because you're better at putting words together than they are, but they hire you to put together the words that they would have put together if they had had the time. Um, and that, that's, a, that's, that's a dicey situation because, you know, in most cases there are some exceptions, but in most cases they're just not very apt in that, in that way. And so what I ended up having to do is write the way my boss would have written, which was which is badly. Um, I wanted to call the book um, "Learning to Write Badly," but it's not a good title. But it does sort of sum it up, part of the part of the part of the story up. Um, just figuring out uh, how to to write for to write in a bad way. You thought you were hired to write well, and you're, you you need to string words together in really awkward ways, which is against your nature. So. That was an adventure. Yeah, I, I guess it was. I gave a speech today on Theodore Roosevelt, and uh, he, he made the English language his friend. Uh, of course, yeah, he was, yeah, a, yeah. was a published writer by the time he graduated from Harvard mm -hmm. uh, in 1880 and uh, went on to write 35 books. Uh, you can think of other presidents, uh, you know, I guess most famously uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt with his fireside chats, or you think of Ronald Reagan, the great communicator. Um, I was recently looking at one of his note cards for a speech, and uh, just, again, fascinating just to, to look at the fact that he, he made just a few words uh, evident on his card, and, uh, and he even spelled those words phonetically. The, the old actor there, he's, right. he, he's, very, he's very aware that it, what matters is how he's heard. No one's going to read his note card. That's right. And, uh, and he made the English language his friend. And uh, it was JFK said of Winston Churchill, you know, he, he, he made the English language, uh, well, an army. He, he sent it to war. But when I look at so much contemporary political discourse, it seems to be particularly vacuous. 
And, and, and for instance, the governor you work for, I think it's fair to say, when you look at, at several of his speeches, he doesn't really even use sentences. <laughs> right, right. Um, and and his, um, his op-eds were in that same style. Um, they were mostly complete sentences, but they weren't the kind of sentences that would make you read the next one, if you know what I mean. Um, you know, they were almost calculated to make you stop reading because you couldn't figure them out. Um, and, you know, it's not to, it's, I'm not picking on him particularly. Uh, it's, a lot of people are not gifted in that way. It's just that some politicians don't know that they're not gifted in that way. Um, and, yeah, um, it's, it's, it can be pretty tough. You know, you wouldn't, in most cases, you wouldn't want a writer being a governor or a president. Um, you wouldn't want your president, you know, struggling over phrases in the middle of the night. That's what writers do. Um, and they, and they, they think about the shape of, of an intro to an op-ed for hours. You don't want your, your leaders to do that. Um, it's an unusual gift to be able to, um, as you say, be the friend of the English language and yet not be a, a writer and not be sort of ens- enslaved by language the way writers are. Well, when you think about uh, th- th- this quandary, though, it raises a question. What is it that gets one elected that isn't the friend of the English language? And, uh, and, and why is it uh, that, uh, I mean, to state the matter clearly, uh, Governor Sanford was elected overwhelmingly uh, in terms of his, uh, of his first run for office. And, uh, you know, so, so clearly there's a political art these days that is not tied to rhetoric oratory yeah. or, or literary yeah. ability. Right. I think that there, there is now and has been for, for a while an impatience with, with rhetoric. And, um, yeah, I mean, at this point in the conversation, Donald Trump is going to make his way in because he, he, you, you can't talk about politics anymore without talking about Trump. And Trump is in many ways the, the, the culmination of this, of this growing um, sentiment, this growing impatience with, with, with boilerplate political rhetoric. He is the most unrhetorical person. Um, his sentences are, are simple and short and brutal, and he uses them effectively, but when you, when you listen to him, you don't hear a, a politician trying to, trying to justify himself or trying to put por- forward a view with that typical um, vacuous political style of trying to say just enough without saying really much of anything. You don't hear that in Trump. You might hear some terrible things, depending on your, your point of view, but you don't hear that. And, um, and, and, and um, the governor I worked for was, in many ways, um, he was the same thing. He wasn't, he wasn't anti-rhetorical in the way Trump is, but uh, people didn't like um, Governor Sanford because of uh, the way he used language or, or the, even the things he said. There was, there was a, they liked his, they liked his ideas, but they also, he, he had a way of 
um, it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to put your finger on it, but he had a way of seeming like he wasn't a politician. You know, he's slightly mm-hmm. clumsy with his with his words, but he seemed natural, and he seemed like he meant what he said. And he wore the same navy blue blazer his entire administration without cleaning it. <laughs> it, it all the all the all the stories about his cheapness are are absolutely true. In fact, um, you you know the the stories don't do him justice, really. Yeah, he's he's he was in in some ways, not in every way, but in some ways he was he was the real thing. Yeah, well, that, that's and, and I want to make very clear your book is is kind of sad without being really cynical. Um, I mean, there, there's some cynical moments in it. I would have to say, to be sure, but uh, but but there seems to be. Uh, you give the governor his due for being pretty authentically who he was. I hope so. Yeah, that, that raises a host of questions with me, though. So, just in terms of this kind of conversation, what are the real ethical uh, minefields, maybe inevitable ethical conflicts, into which a speechwriter for a politician walks? What? What does that terrain look like? By the time you read your book, you're you're, you're pretty shell shocked about just how bad this can get. <laughs> right. Well, um, I, I went back and forth on that for a long time, and I did want to tell a story that I thought was funny and interesting and and helpful in some ways, um, but. I should I should point out that I did not tell the whole truth um, in in the sense that I didn't tell every bad story there was to tell. I assure you, um, there were things that went on not not necessarily perpetrated by by the governor himself or said by him, but but by others. Um, you know, I it. it a couple of people in the media called called the book a tell-all, and I, I assure you, I did not tell it all. Um, but I, I, I wanted to so tell tell this story, but um, I, I wanted to, I, I felt I needed to give, as you say, to give the governor his due, which I did, and I and I and I did admire him, and in some ways, I, I can't help still admiring him. The the ethics of it, I don't know. Um, I, I wasn't I wasn't made to sign any non-disclosure agreement, and incidentally, you know, I didn't I didn't actually use his name um, in in the book. I mean, you not many not many governors have um, disappeared and emerged to tell the story of an affair with an Argentinian mistress. So it's pretty clear. Well, they said they were uh, hiking the Appalachian Trail. <laughs> right, right, right. So it's, it's pretty clear who it is, but I didn't I didn't use his name just as a way of suggesting that look, this is sure this is about my story, but this is a story about American politics uh, as it exists in many places and in many states, um, and has 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 existed this way for a while. Um, it's a story about politics rather than one politician. Sure. I wasn't trying to hit hit anybody. No, and, I and, and when I hit. ask about the ethical quandary, and by, and by the way, you're not exactly incognito, because even though you don't use his name, it does appear, appear in the, the flyleaf of your book. Uh, right. and, and there could not be another governor in any galaxy to whom this could apply <laughs> other than 
<laughs> other than Mark Sanford. But but right. leaving that for a moment, what I meant is the larger picture. Without getting to this particular politician, what are the ethical issues of writing for another person's voice? Oh, happy. Right. Uh, you right. know, because that, when you went to do a Ph.D., I believe, at the University of Edinburgh, you probably didn't plan to become a South Carolina governor's speechwriter. But here you are writing words for someone else to speak or to mail. Right. So right. W- what does that look like? Well, I, you know, um, some people th- think that politicians hire speechwriters because they, the politicians, are dumb. And they need somebody to put words in their mouths. And that is just not true at all. Um, the 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 chief reason why a a an elected official would need a speechwriter is because that official is expected to speak so often about so many topics in so many venues it's unnatural. Um, but if you if you look at any governor's um, typical schedule and certainly um, any president's daily schedule, they are asked to speak so often it's it's almost cruel. No normal person can come up with something um, even passably interesting to say that often without some help. And so you you have a speechwriter or or more than one speechwriter who will, you know, put in a document. Um, this is what the event is. This is who's sponsoring it. Here's what they're interested in hearing from you. And here are some interesting things that we, the speechwriters, think that that you should say. The 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 governor or, or whoever uh, reads what his speechwriters have given him, and he he either um, makes edits, he he might say it verbatim. Uh, so, some do that, I'm told, um, or he might um, go storm into the speechwriter's office in a rage, as my boss did, and say, you know, every, everything you've written is dumb, um, and I want it rewritten. Uh, but in in any case, in most relationships between a politician and a writer, the 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 process is a collaborative one. It's not one of, um, hey, I'm I'm I don't know what to say here. Just give me the words to say, and I'll say them. I mean, I think that that has happened in some cases, but it's not a very it's not a very productive way of 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 speaking as a politician. And um, I, I found that the job in some ways was 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 rewarding it could have been rewarding in other ways and it wasn't but um you know the the um if we if only we asked our politicians to speak less uh or or if we demand that they say something every moment of the day um uh, maybe they wouldn't need to be uh helped so much uh by by writers but this is these are the, this is what we want from our politicians. We want them to talk about everything all the time, and so um, they need help. And endless letters, because you talk about at one point taking on some of the letter writing, and yeah. uh, and, and and by the way, this is very frightening to me. Just as a leader, I, I will speak publicly several times today, but the mm-hmm. thought that someone else would frame anything I say is horrifying to me. Now, maybe that's an ethical issue. Maybe it's a pride issue. Maybe it's a combination of the two. But I can't imagine getting up and speaking what someone else has prepared and mailing something in my name that someone else has written is is similarly frightening. But it, I, there are just some I, I can't even list all the points in which I just had to to 
right. respond humorously to your book. At one point, you talk about, for instance, having to write the kinds of letters that a governor's office has to write, for instance, to a boy who got in a prestigious boys' choir. And, uh, and I thought what was funny about that is that you had to write a letter in the voice of the governor, but that meant you had to put in phrases that, frankly, you would never speak. No. Uh, yourself, uh, you know, no. what, what was it? You have, you must have talent in spades or by the bucket full or something. <laughs> and you said that shows up in almost every letter. Yeah, right. Well, um, I, n- number one, um, Al, you should not run for office. Got it. <laughs> right. Um, th- right. The, the, um, a, a lot of, and this is a, this brings up a larger topic, um, about, uh, working for a politician when you when you start working for a politician especially earlier on in that in that office holder's career you're you're working for for ideals for goals for principles um the longer i think the longer the politician stays in office his staff find themselves working to perpetuate a political career I think that that is inevitable. I, I don't. I don't see any counterexamples. And certainly, that was true of our office. Um, even I, I worked for the second term of a two-term governor, who had already been in Congress before that. And um, there were some days earlier on when I felt that we were working hard for some laudable principles. And there were other days, particularly in the latter part of his tenure, when it was clear that the only reason why we were showing up to work is to defend a a a political career and to and to advance it in some way. And I I, I don't say that to 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 pick on him. Um, it's it's just inevitable. Um, and maybe that's why people are for term limits. I don't know. But when you, as a writer, um, you so so much of what I was doing, like sending out these ridiculous letters uh, in the governor's voice, the only only reason I was asked to do that, and the only purpose, was to make his name and reputation um, as as widely thought of. As, as widely disseminated as possible, um, because he's a politician, he needs people to like him in order to to succeed, in order to yep. win votes, and, and in order to win favor when he when he needs something done. Well, less um, cynically, you might also point out that these letters do have meaning to the people who receive them, at least to many. They you do. Know, a high schooler getting a letter from the governor congratulating him for a major achievement in life that that's not nothing. You know, there there, right, there is something right. to that. And look. Uh, as I, I think I said this in the book, um, the governor I worked for, he was raised as a as a letter writer. You know, we were raised in the South, and we we were told, you know, when you when you um, when Aunt Maisel, um got you a, a goofy looking sweater, it didn't matter if you hated it, you wrote her a thank you note. Um, and he was raised the same way, and he he felt that people needed a letter from him especially when they said anything nice about him or did anything nice for him, but even when they just you know, did nice things in general. He, he, for some reason, had this thing that he, he wanted to write that person a letter, and fair enough. Um, 
you know, he couldn't write all these people letters, or he would have been doing nothing but writing letters his entire tenure. But it also happens that there's a political advantage to, to doing that, especially yeah. when you're disciplined about it. And that, you know, I'm told that George H. W. Bush um, uh, was also disciplined in this way. And I mean, the, I'm told that he paved the way to the White House with a, a million little notes like this to yeah. to various people. Um, and that's, you know, it's a discipline, and fair enough. Yeah. Well, George H. W. Bush, for instance, when he was running for president would stay up as late as it took to write a thank you note to everyone he believed had hosted him for an event or done anything for him during the course of that day. I mean, that, right. that was pretty legendary to people who were in the administration. Yeah, and if you, if you got one of those notes, I guarantee you still have it in your possession somewhere. The argument that there is a necessary separation of politics from the meaningful use of the English language isn't new, but it does feel newly acute. But as this conversation makes clear, that kind of separation, tragic as it is, has quite a long lineage. You make another argument in the book. I'm going to read to you from the book. You say, everybody complains that politics separates words from their meanings, and this is part of the reason why. Words are useful, but often their meanings are not. Sometimes what you want is feeling rather than meaning, warmth rather than content, and that takes verbiage. The trick you said for me was to use the governor's verbiage rather than the formulaic balderdash of contemporary politics, end quote. Well, it, it's, you know, back to the point that politicians are asked to speak so often about so many things um you you can't when you when you write for one you can't help but um fill a lot of a lot of um your goal is to use verbiage to 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 say something to you know you have to be on the record somehow but you don't want to commit yourself um you know if the governor is asked um, I mean, people pick on politicians for this, and I guess rightly so in a lot of cases. But in their defense, if you ask a politician what, you know, or his spokesman or whatever, uh, what what he thinks about some issue, and he doesn't care about the issue, right? He can't care about everything. Um, he doesn't really care, and but he can't say, I don't care. You know, he can't say, um, whatever. Uh, he has to say something, and so. What he wants to say, um, and I think this is natural, is as little as possible without, you know, um, making any trouble for himself, without making anybody mad, and without committing himself to a course of action that he may not want to take later on. And that's normal. You probably, we probably use language in this way in our day-to-day lives. Um, but you know, the longer you're in politics, you hear that kind of language so often, and you know that it doesn't mean anything. You get, you know, you you're, you become cynical about it, and it's it's frustrating to hear, and it's it's um, it's something that you have to produce if you to generate if you work in a political office. Um, so there's there's good and bad in it. Um, I tried to focus on both both aspects of of political language. The, the, the stupid verbiage and, and you know, the necessity of, of that kind of language and, yeah. and, the, and the 
and the frustration that comes from it. But I think there's an immediate connection to your book on the part of the reader, and I, I'm thinking of those who would be listening to thinking in public, uh, many of whom would be speaking and teaching and, and, uh, and preaching. And uh, yeah, there's a real warning in this book uh, about using meaningless phrases, sometimes just for filler, and sometimes because you want to be heard as saying something without saying anything too specific. You, you, you talk about this particular governor's habit of using platitudinous observations like what I'd say going forward from where I stand. I have every reason to believe. I started stacking those up, and, and, and there are a lot of preachers who do the same thing. <laughs> oh, we have in, in Christian circles, we, I, I call it uh, uh, holy verbiage. Um, and, you know, you, you, you don't want to be too, too hard on, on, on preachers. They, hey, turnabout's they, fair play. Take, take your best they, swing. <laughs> but but I, I, over the years, I tend to, I think, I tend to hear that Christian verbiage a lot in prayers. Yeah. Um, it's it's the, the public prayers that you, you, for some reason, you know, we in the evangelical and Protestant traditions, we don't think that we should write out our prayers for whatever reason, even though we should in a lot of cases. But um, so the extemporaneous prayers just end up being uh, sort of themeless collections of Christian platitudes. You know the meaning in, in, most, in most cases, but sometimes you feel, um, could, you, could you give some shape to this, this um, blob of, of words, please? Um, and, and yeah, it's, it, it, it shows up in, in a lot of sermons, too. Um, but, you know, I, I feel for, for ministers who, um, you know, not really like politicians. Not, it, the goal is not the same, certainly, at least I hope not. But um, you do have to say something in a lot of situations when you would rather just say nothing. Uh, true you true enough, but if, if you were to describe this as a politician, to use your phrase of themeless collections of meaningless platitudes— You'd have to conclude that with not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, in in, in yep. your uh, in your book, let's face it. Had there not been the catastrophe of this administration in its second term, there probably would not be the interest in your book. But a part of what makes the book so compelling is that you had an unavoidable and uh, non-volunteer front seat at one of the greatest political meltdowns in American history. What is it like to try to find words in the middle of that? Well, right. Um, you know, I, I, I mentioned before that I, was, I, I had intended to, to write a book all along. Um, and, I, you know, I didn't know what shape that would take or, or who would be in it or what I would write about. But the story, um, I would use a lot of anecdotes from the office to, to tell some kind of story. But the more I thought about it, I just couldn't. I couldn't give it a narrative arc. Um, it didn't have a. It didn't have a rise and fall. Uh, and then this crazy thing happened, um, where one day, the the politician I worked for was was on top of the world, and was on TV every other night. Mentioned as a likely vice presidential nominee. Right. Right. Um, and then you know after after the after the McCain um, um, Palin ticket um, went down in flames, it's, um, you know he 
he was mentioned in as the as a big ticket item um, as a challenger to Obama in whatever 2012. So this would have been 2009. Um, you know, one minute on top of the world, um, as much as a as a as a governor could be, I guess, and then um, and then in an instant, um, a a the butt of a thousand jokes. Um, you know, the the object of late night um, comedy routines, and and so on. And so there was my narrative arc. Um, I didn't I didn't have to come up with one. Um, but it it was. I guess the weirdest thing about being a writer for a politician in that kind of situation was that as as soon as it happened, um, my job was no longer to generate language. Um, Because for one thing, he wasn't speaking publicly at any events. Uh, Nobody wanted to hear from him. you know, he might have to speak in some kind of uh, private setting, but there were no big events on our schedule. And so, but I found that um, one thing we had to do was go through a lot of verbiage that was that was sent out, you know, on a routine basis, uh, you know, constituent letters and form letters and this kind of thing, and take out certain forms of language um, you know, I, I think I tell the story in the book of um, one day that one of the deputy chiefs of staff comes to me and says, you know, we, we have a serious problem. Um, this is maybe two weeks after the, the big scandal. I said, what was that? Uh, and she said, um, well, the word, the word integrity is all over our material. Um, and she said, it's not that I don't, it's not that I think that he doesn't have any integrity. I said, I understand, I understand. It's just not a word that we need to use right now. <laughs> Um, or, you know, there was a, there was a letter that went out to, to, um, to people who invite the governor to their weddings. Uh, I don't know why people do this, but apparently, you know, a lot of people just think that they need to invite the governor to, to their wedding. And, um, he usually doesn't go, but he'll, he'll send a letter instead. And we wanted the governor not to send out that letter anymore um, for evident reasons, and he wanted to still send it out, but he wanted me to rewrite it. So I had to write a letter about marriage, the importance of marriage, without saying anything about marriage. Um, So it was that sort of exercise, you know, taking, removing content from, from things that that was my primary job for maybe I don't know, nine months or so before we really started. Uh, he really started speaking publicly again. Weird. I mean, how do you not write about that if you're a writer? You no, I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful you did. I, and, uh, and and I I picked up The Speechwriter. I, I knew of it coming. Uh, but it's one of those books where I just know myself as well. And I know that when this book is in my hands, I'm pretty much not going to eat. Uh, once I start it, because it's not the kind of book I can pick up and set down. I uh, I read it in a sitting, and uh, and and I felt myself in the story because it seemed to me it was the intersection of uh, 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 of the political reality of the United States 
mm. you know, in our, in our times, of what we've done to politics and politicians, of what politicians have done to language, and what all of us as a culture have been complicit in doing in terms of meaning and uh, actually destroying any effort at actually being meaningful and the vacuity of, of our culture. The, you know, go, going back to Neil Postman a generation ago, amusing ourselves to death. The, yeah. what, what would we expect of politicians or anyone else but what we have now inherited? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, I, 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 didn't know, I didn't know about Trump when, when I wrote the book. Um, the Trump phenomenon, but but um, I think that in some ways um, he is the he for good and ill. I think he's the fulfillment of of this vacuity, um, the the absence of meaning. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't want to go too far in, into that topic, but but we we are in a world now where uh, Trump gets accused of. You know, people use the term post-truth. Um, and, and applied it particularly to Trump, but we've been in a post-truth world for a while now. Um, it, it's 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 not new. We've been we've been sowing this for for a while, and now we're we're reaping it. Yeah, we had a president of the United States say under oath that all matters what the word "is" means. <laughs> yes, I think a lot about that. It's it's interesting, isn't it? That you know, certain politicians are remembered for certain phrases. Acts of evil or, or or saw bigotry of low expectations in the cases of George W. Bush say, um, and I don't know what it will be for Trump, but uh, but for for Bill Clinton, it's 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 that one, uh, the is is one. Yeah, at, at this point, for Donald Trump, I think it's going to be huge and sad with an exclamation point. <laughs> and, uh, and 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 by the way, I think that also makes another point, which is. I think one of the reasons why President Trump is such a native inhabitant of Twitter is because Twitter is what we have become, 140 characters of sad exclamation point. Uh, that's who we are. And, and all I can say to that is sad. Sad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, he, he's really good at it. He's, no I, I mean, no he, doubt. He is just terrific at that. And there, there's a talent there. There's a, there's, you know, there there are some things that don't need to be said in more than 140 characters, and he does it well. Yeah, uh, uh, just about anything that ends with an exclamation point can be said in 140 characters. That, that, that meaningfully <laughs> ends in an exclamation point can be said in 140 characters, I think. Yeah. Now, I, I want to uh, shift to, to a, a, a different subject line here. And uh, uh, you did do a Ph.D. In, uh, in English literature at the University of Edinburgh, and you, you wrote uh, a work on the Enlightenment and— uh, Made an interesting, and how, how's this for a segue, by the way? We're going from Trump Tower to Edinburgh. But uh, you, you make the, uh, the thesis, uh, argue the thesis, that even the London culture of the Enlightenment uh, was heavily driven by Scotland and, uh, mm -hmm. and Scottish figures. And you argue that those uh, Scottish figures were largely influenced in their essays uh, by the preaching they had heard. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's yeah. an interesting thesis. Yeah. Well, right. Um, it's taken me back a little bit. That's right. Um, if w one of the things that I was surprised to learn in 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 studying the the well the 18th century really um, 18th century Scotland, but I think it would apply um, to a large degree to England as well, is the 
just the degree to which sermons were the 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 form of of sermon was was a part of the culture the now i'm i may not get this exactly right but something like this was the case that um collections of sermons in the in the 17 um well in the in let's just say in the latter part of the the 18th century collections of sermons were the the largest selling form of book yep. um in, in Scotland and it seems extraordinary today to think that people would be excited about buying a book of sermons uh but they were um and you know people debated whether you know um reading a sermon was was you know it it didn't have the the, the same effect as as hearing it but it it just shows the, the the ways in which people were were influenced by and interested in um that that form of discourse a sermon in, involved a man talking with authority um you know you you didn't talk back you don't talk back to a sermon at least, at least not in our traditions um not in the scottish tradition he, um you know he he speaks uh God's word, um, and you know, there's that famous um, question and answer in the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism. Um, the word of God consists in the the um, hearing, but especially the preaching. Yes, um, and I think it's question 89. Listeners can can check, um, but. Um, the, the the word of God came through this this um, authoritative discourse, and um, well, my argument was that that sort of culture led very easily um, to to a to a to a culture dominated by um, essay writers. Essay essays are in in some ways like like sermons, and an author um, speaks with some kind of presumed authority anyway on on a on a text yeah uh, and and the 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 catechism uh, the, their states uh, in terms of the answer the preaching of the word is the effectual means of convincing and converting sinners right uh, that that points right to the the power of the word of god through the sermon yeah. And, and you mentioned the fact that just about any educated person during the Scottish Enlightenment was expected to have heard sermon after sermon after sermon. At one point, I, I did wonder if you collect words, because you use a word in in the the text of your, your work um, that, uh, that I've never seen anyone use. And I can only imagine that you used it because you collected it and saved it until that perfect moment when you could use it. That's hebdomadal. Uh, you, oh, you, I love that word. Yeah, you said they had heard sermons, you know, hebdomadally. Uh, and uh, you know, weekly, but uh, but you uh, you use that word on purpose. You you had collected it for some time, right? <laughs> well, it does me. I, I don't know if it's an exact synonym of weekly, hebdomadal. Uh, it, it's on a seven-day it, it pattern, it, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. On a seven-day pattern. So, so may, maybe it's an exact synonym. But I, I, I you're right. You you caught me. I did enjoy using that. Yeah, but I'm just guessing. You could not work. Uh, hemdomadal uh, into uh, any of Governor Stanford's speeches. <laughs> just, to, just a guess here. I should have tried, though, just to see what would happen. Okay, a, a, a final issue here I want to discuss with you. You got into a little bit of controversy in recent months 
over something that matters a great deal to me. Uh, you wrote an essay at First Things in which you, uh, you spoke of the revision of basic Christianity by the late John Stott. And you pointed to a rather intentional move to theological vagueness, a, uh, a loss of, uh, of, for instance, the doctrine of atonement uh, that took place in that revision, and uh, that over about a 50-year period. Talk to me about that controversy, how you got into it. Well, I, you know, I bought the book. This would be a, a, a more recent reprint of basic Christianity, and I was intending to give it to a friend. Um, and it had been years since I read it, so I just started reading uh, on page one. And um, when I, I started reading, and the, the first sentence, I think, or maybe the second sentence, I don't know, it just caught my attention. And I thought, for some reason, that doesn't sound right. I think I think in the new version, Stott says something like, young people today dislike institutions. And I thought, well, is that, is that the case? They don't like institutions? Because they all seem to shell out hundreds of thousands of dollars to universities. So I, I just wondered about that. And then I picked up an my older version and looked at it and know, in fact, he had said in that first sentence, young people are suspicious of institutionalism, which is different from saying institution. So that just sort of caught my attention, and the, I started going line by line, and the the differences were stark. And they, about every two or three sentences, were different in some way. And many of the differences were small, but some of them were pretty significant, I felt. Um, I mean, some of the things were just sort of like, um, you know, the sorts of things that um, old, you know, hidebound reactionary conservatives like me would care about. You know, all the references to poetic lines were gone, for instance. And hymns. Well, yeah, hymn lines were gone. Um, well, I don't like it, but okay. But then there were some there were there were some more theological points that seems to be uh, just skirted over slightly, um, made slightly less pointed. Now, I think that if you want to do that, if you, you you need to advertise on the book cover that this is a revised version, whereas there was no indication that the book had been touched, except in a very very slight comment. Uh, by Stott, who um, written not, not long before he died, um, that the this version had been edited by so and so. That was the only indication. There was nothing on the cover that said revision or, or new edition or anything like that. Uh, I think it might have said like uh, it's in you know fifty fifty yeah year fifty year anniversary, anniversary. something yeah. like that. But yeah. it didn't say wholly rewritten. Um, I just think that if you if you want to rewrite a book, fine, but you have to say so. You you know that book that book particularly that that's a very special book to tamper with. Um, many people Absolutely. have become Christians because of that book, and it's look it's not going to have the same effect anymore. Yes, um, it's you know that book is not going to be 
um, as as influential as it was a uh, half century ago. Um, and to and to think that you could just um, jerk around the language and flatten out some of the some of the some of the theological points or take out some hymn lines and think it's going to be just as influential as it was before. That's uh, that is folly to my mind. Yeah, so I wrote this essay yeah. and 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 it it upset people. It, it did primarily, I guess, because Erdman's didn't do it. Right. It didn't didn't commission the the revision. It was IVP, which the version I had was Erdman, so I didn't know. Um, maybe I should have done done more homework on that. But anyway, it, Erdman's got quite upset by it, uh, which is fair enough. Um, we you know came to an agreement, I guess. Um, Anyway, that's how that happened. But that public exchange was pretty respectful in insofar as it was available to the public. I, I, I read all of it out there because I had an intense interest in this because I had noticed the very same thing. In particular, the, uh, the absence of atonement language in so much of, of, uh, of, of the evangelical literature uh, and now with this, uh, th- this new up-to-date version of Stott's basic Christianity. And so reconciliation is presented without direct reference to atonement. Atonement simply disappears. Right. And, uh, I mean, as a theologian, that's a massive issue. And, and you acknowledge that, but you go on to make another argument that I had not seen made before and I think is really important. You made the argument that even the author of a book does not have the right to change the book and present it as the same book. Right. Yeah, I, I, I do think that. Um, and that, that's, you know, it, this is not you know, batting averages here. It's not an exact science, but um, it's more of a judgment call. But particularly in a book, as I say, like that one, that so many people have a, a deep emotional attachment to that book um, and, and can, can remember lines from it and, you know, hand it out as gifts um, and, and tell stories about when they, when they read it. Um, you know, I, 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 at, at some point, the book, uh, I don't know exactly how to put it, um, but at some point, the book becomes everybody's, not just the authors. Be, you know, yeah. many hundreds of thousands of people, I feel, have some kind of ownership in that book. And, um, you know, if, if you want to change it, um, you know, it's a bit like, I, I don't know, this is probably a, a stupid parallel, but, um, you know, Coke Classic or something. Um, if you're going to go and change the thing that we hold dear, um, you better admit it fr- up front, and then we're, we're going to hit you for it. <laughs> we're going to punish you. Um, because that's not what we wanted. We want the old one. Um, but yeah, it was it was the it was the almost uh, not surreptitiousness, but the 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 quietness of the of the of the change that that sort of upset me. It was the fact that that I had to go and line by line and figure out what had happened in order to n- notice it at all. Yeah, and you actually document it. It was according to your math, two out of every three lines in the book had a significant change. Yeah, uh, yeah, and uh, and by significant, uh, it's no longer the same sentence. Just to be blunt, right. it uh, it's a different <laughs> sentence. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit. You know, it's a bit like this. And uh, I don't want to say too much here. People get upset about this, but um, you know, the the changing of hymn lines. Um, you know, some hymn books have these these slight alterations, and. 
Well, you wouldn't do that to a Milton poem or a, you know, a, a poem by, by Yeats or Wordsworth. Why do you think that you can do it to a hymn? If you, if you think it's theologically objectionable, don't sing it. You know, if you're going to sing it, sing the thing that the guy wrote. That's just, you know, that could be just a sort of a reactionary attitude of mine, but that's the way yeah, I Yeah, and you know, we're used to liberals doing this. This is what liberals do. They uh, they the take hymns and, and take it out. Yeah, they they do it with the Constitution. They do it with hymns. Uh, so, uh, for instance, there was the brouhaha, uh, uh, quite revealing as it was, about two years ago, I guess, when the Presbyterian Church USA wanted to use uh, one of the Getty hymns. And yeah. uh, they uh, they wanted to take out uh, all reference to uh, God's wrath uh, and, and atonement. And... Uh, um, you know, there was immediate, the Getty said no to their credit. Said you, right. you can't, you can't do that. But I was in a very conservative church. I mean, an unquestionably conservative church, a, a, a church that preaches the gospel, stands by the gospel, contends for the gospel. And there I was on the front row singing, uh, "Come Thou Fount of of Many Blessings," and uh, the word "interposed" was gone. As that is, Christ interposed His precious blood. Interposed was taken out, and 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 now it's uh, it, it's that uh, we we are saved by His precious blood uh, in in the language that was used uh, there. And that's not the same thing. The interposition of the blood of Christ in a substitutionary atonement, as the propitiation for our sin, that's not the same thing. You take out interposed, you have just changed the hymn, and it was done by undoubtedly well-meaning people. But right. it, it does right. you change the sentence, you change the doctrine. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I remember being being in a in a Presbyterian church, um, and maybe not in not a conservative one in this case. And we were singing the great uh, Watts hymn, uh, "Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past," and the line, um, "Time like an ever rolling stream bears all its sons away." It became time like an ever rolling stream bears all its years away. Oh. Okay, you know, sons, you didn't want to say sons, so you said years. But that doesn't make sense. You know, time bears years away. That's just saying time is time. No, it does away with people, not itself. So this, you know, I wasn't able to really participate. No, and and I mean, again, and that's followed by the line, they fly forgotten as a dream dies at the end of day. Uh, you know, years, the disappearance of years means nothing. The disappearance of sons means everything. Right. Yeah. 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 You don't, you don't have funerals for years. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. Well, we could talk about this kind of thing forever. I really have enjoyed the conversation. And as a matter of fact, we can, uh, we, we, we can join in a curmudgeon club, uh, to rail against uh, some of the developments in, uh, in language and culture around us. But I do want to end with a, with a word of exhortation. I'd like to ask you as someone who is now one of the most famous political speechwriters of our times, whether you intended to be or not, uh, and uh, especially after the writing of this book, what would you say to a young generation of Christians about the stewardship of words? Uh, you know, I, 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 have, I have mixed thoughts on, on this topic. One of the things that I do feel is the case is that don't get exercised about the abuse of words in our political sphere. Politics was never a place you went for timeless truth. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a sphere of 
cynical, in some cases, cynical people uh, warring with each other for for power. You know, you, you you need to look elsewhere if you if you care about if you feel if you attach sacredness to language. I, I don't. My my thoughts on this are still in process, but but I, I don't see a lot of a lot of hope there. We've been post-truth, as it were, for for a long time in the political sphere. But you know, we do need we do need Christian um, men and women in in that in that sphere. Um, so uh, you really need to think through your theological commitments and your your ethical commitments before you go in, because you're going to have to use language in in some ways that just would not be appropriate in other spheres. For instance, you know, in, as a as a minister, or or in some other place. So it's um you really need to think that through. The big thing for me is don't attach too much importance to politics. Politics follows culture. Um absolutely. You know, it 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 doesn't you know you, you can win all the elections in the world, but if you've if you've lost the culture then you've lost. Politics like like um you know the advertising it just responds to what's already there if you like politics if you're attuned to it by all means um, have at it and and make a difference but uh, our, our I don't think that our culture is going to be changed fundamentally by any elected official or group of elected officials just I just don't believe it um, I could be wrong I've been wrong about many things um, even in you know in politics, I think we've all been wrong at some point over the last eighteen months. My advice is not to take it too seriously and to, yeah. and to concentrate on other things instead. So about concentrating on other things, uh, you're a writer. You certainly are writing. I, I, I know you write for the Washington Post. You, you've written pieces for the uh, the Wall Street Journal. Uh, what's your current big project? Well, I am working on another book. And it's it's on the it's in the same sort of sphere as as the speechwriter. Um, it I, it will be a a fictional account um, of of some of some things that go on in in the political sphere. I won't say too much about it, but um, it's uh, there's there are just so many um, preposterous and funny things that you hear when you work in that sphere. Um, and they need to be laughed at. Um, we, we should wring our hands about them too, but we need to laugh at them. And that's, I, I hope that this book will give us some reasons to laugh about our, our politics. There's something deeply Augustinian about that. And uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I will look forward to seeing that book uh, next as well. Barton Swain, thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Well, it's terrific to talk to you about, thank you. I certainly enjoyed that conversation with Barton Swain. His book, The Speechwriter, A Brief Education in Politics, is one of those books that largely took the political world by storm. It was one of those surprise books. Here it lands in the middle of a political season in which the lessons learned by Barton Swain and the very effective way in which he tells the story 
was actually a story that almost had to be told. And of course, the background to it, as he said, he was looking for the narrative arc for his book, and it's hard to come up with a narrative arc better than what landed at his feet catastrophically with the meltdown of the politician that he was serving. There are undoubtedly many lessons for all of us in terms of the speechwriter and the story. There's the huge, almost epic story of the meltdown of a man and his public reputation, of the, the collapse of political dreams. And yet, even as we're having this conversation, Mark Sanford is a member of the United States Congress. There are stories within stories here. And then, of course, a conversation about language and meaning. I think one of the most interesting arguments that Barton Swain makes is that politicians need words, but often do not need their meanings. The meanings are often actually, well, rather in the way of what the politician's trying to do. There's a danger for all of us in doing the very same thing, in using words divorced from their meaning. There's a stewardship of language, a stewardship of words, a stewardship of sentences that actually we should understand is a very important part of our responsibility. It's not just a literary issue, it's an ethical issue. And beyond that, there are applications of this to every arena of life, and certainly one of the most pressing would be the arena of Christian speech, of Christian writing, and of course, of Christian preaching. It was also interesting to have that conversation with Barton Swaim about that academic work he did back in terms of the Scottish Enlightenment and the centrality of sermons during that age, uh, the absence of that same experience of just about everyone hearing sermons is about more than the loss of a literary form. It's about the marginalization of Christian speech and, of course, of the preaching of God's Word in the larger culture around us. If nothing else, this kind of conversation just underlines that stewardship of words that should be one of our concerns, no matter whether we're a reader or a writer or both, whether we are in the audience or the speaker, or as all of us are at times, both. It's important to recognize that stewardship of words matters to us all, and for reasons that go far beyond what the secular worldview can yet understand. Thanks for listening to Thinking in Public, and many thanks to my guest, Martin Swain, for thinking with me today. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.